season three, episode number 10, already 45 episodes in this Mastering Agility podcast. Time goes by so fast. Before welcoming this week's guest, I wanted to let you guys know that we have another giveaway this week, and we're giving away a Neuland marker set, 15 markers to be exact, with a travel bag, as well as a book set for you to develop, to learn, to grow. And that's what this Mastering Agility community really is all about. The only thing that you have to do to be able to win these sets is to join the Mastering Agility Discord community. That's it. For today's episode, we're talking to Emily Weber about creating communities of practice. Why should you be? Why should you care about communities of practice? What are they useful for? How do you set those up? And what do we define as a community? Stay tuned and you'll find out. Emily Weber, thank you very much for joining us today in this episode of the Mastering Agility podcast. I hope the weather is just as fine as it is over here. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. And the sun is out here as well. So um, uh, always is uplifting. So when spring, when spring appears, it's always really uplifting. It it is, isn't it? It feels like it's not the, the, the very typical British and Dutch weather that we usually have. This is so much better. <laughs> and today we're talking about communities of practice. What makes you enthusiastic about communities of practice? What do they mean to you? Uh, so I, I just, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got into communities of practice. Now in my, uh, I guess in my non-work or work adjacent life um i've always had a bit of a habit of setting things up getting people together around some kind of common topics and that might be that um in some cases that's like setting up meetups which i've done a lot of in the past or i used to run a community forum for the area of london hackney that i used to live in and part of that was around there was a lot of, there was a few kind of prominent blogs in the area that were quite negative and I wanted to kind of get a lot of sharing and a bit more positivity and, and allow people the chance to connect with each other to create something that's kind of bigger than the sum of its parts. Um, and so I, I kind of naturally was always joining people up and I really saw an opportunity to do that within uh, within work and within the workplace, um, because generally I believe that we are we are stronger when we're together. Still, it's a very challenging to do to really get people together outside of their intrinsic motivation, right? If you look at Drive, mm-hmm. for instance, by Daniel Pink, intrinsic motivation and mastery is really important. What still makes it that challenging to a lot of organizations to put into practice the communities of practice? Um, I think there's a there's lots of cha- I mean there's lots of challenges that come with any kind of anything that's outside of day to day delivery is often very challenging in any organisation, uh, particularly if it's delivering lots of stuff really quickly, which so many people are, is that you say, well, take time out of delivering this thing um, that you've been told is your number one priority and spend time doing something that doesn't look like it's delivering something of, of value very quickly. Um, and I think that's one of the, the biggest problems for organisations, particularly, you know, you get people saying, we really want you to do this and we want you to spend time learning, we want to support you, but we also want the thing that we asked you to deliver 
next week to be finished and to be perfect and do that. Um, and that that gets that becomes a really mixed message for people. Now, what is the value behind these communities of practice? Is there something that organizations, for instance, can? I feel this. The, the measurability of of community of practice is really hard, yet a lot of organizations would ask for that. Like, how can we measurably improve by having a community of practice? Well, yes, good you ask that. And I have a, so I, I talk about five benefits of communities of practice, and I, and I think they are measurable, at least, um, at least kind of uh, qualitatively, um, in some ways. So my five benefits is that communities of practice support people and create support networks. And I actually think that's uh, my kind of number one foundational thing of any community is that it is a support network and people feel connected to each other. Once you have that and people have trust and psychological safety, there's a lot of other things that can can come with that. Measuring that, that obviously is quite hard, but it, it's, it's in how connected people feel at work and how... Um, yeah, safe they feel at work and the fact they're not leaving. Um, the other uh, benefits that I talk about is that they help people learn and grow skills. Um, they help people share knowledge and join up related work. Um, they help scale words, ways of working and create common approaches. And they help people collaborate with each other and create new things. Now, measuring that, some of that's easier than others. I think particularly with knowledge sharing, um, which you can do in a number of ways, but when you do it in communities, people are, are sharing through stories and uh, of what they're up to and they're sharing kind of more on a slightly more social level is you can start to see where you save time. So there's one, um, when I was setting up a community once for iOS developers, there was one iOS team that talked about the fact that they'd spent a couple of weeks trying to fix a problem. It was a resizing problem and they found out later on that another iOS team in the same building had previously fixed that problem. And even uh, like the fact that they'd spent that much time, that much money, that much effort trying to um, fix something that actually had they been in a community practice, they wouldn't have had to spend that time anyway. So there's like, there is actually some kind of financial quantifiable um, measures that you can do around that. Um, but the real power comes from um, from those connections. It's psychological, because you referred to psychological safety, a topic that I'm I'm very much passionate about. Is that a prerequisite for starting these COPs? Um, not not for starting. I think it's one of the things to to focus on. Um, I remember that to focus on building before kind of trying to expect it to deliver some kind of results. So um, I remember speaking to, I was working with an organisation where they were setting up communities of practice and I said, so, you know, there's these things and it's great to have some principles in place and some somewhere where you store things and start to, um, you know, maybe set some standards and those and collaborate on things and these things can come afterwards. And, and the person I was speaking to was like, yeah, we've got this in place and we've got this in place and we've got our principles and we've got our values and we're all set. And I said, have you have you met yet? He said, oh, no, we haven't met yet. <laughs> it's like, okay. Oh, well done. Um, <laughs> not maybe not a community. <laughs> so the, maybe not a community, but what does define a community for you? 
Um, so I actually wrote a blog post the other day to to put some of my thoughts down. So I've been working with communities of practice for for a number of years, and one thing that I've noticed, and this is particularly within the context of a single organisation, is that people call some organizations have started call, calling everything that's like that I would call maybe a practice or a, a job family or whatever term people might use and just calling that a community. So here's a bunch of people that all have the same job role. They are a community. Um, and that's not really true. <laughs> and the thing that I've started to try and do is say, okay, with a practice, you have things like kind of practice is a little bit more formal and you might all belong to a practice because you have the same job role and there's some standards and there's maybe some career progression and there's some formal kind of capability building. But the community side of this is actually about the connections between the individuals. It's about the collaboration, the psychological safety, um, the kind of cooperation and the social learning that sits in that. Um, and I don't think you can have a community of practice without those community elements. And that's, yeah, I think that's that's really important. You If you just say that group of people there are, are a community, you're kind of missing a whole bunch of really important things um, that make a community. Yeah, exactly. And if, if you would extrapolate that to the more outside world, just looking at cities, for instance, just putting a bunch of people together and to live in a city doesn't make it a community, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that is the approach that I see a lot of organizations take. It's like, hey, you have the same skill set. Good luck. You're from now on, you're either a, a community of practice or a chapter or whatever they want to call it. But that's generally the approach. And I kind of has the same sentiment to me as the definition of self-management. One of those things that's been mentioned by your organization, like from now on, you're self-managing, you're autonomous. Yet organizations skip out on to, to discuss what does that term mean to us? What does a community mean to us? How would you advise organizations to get up to speed with that? Um, I, do you know, I think, so I, often I run an exercise when I'm, when I'm helping communities kick off and I ask people uh, this question, I ask them what value do they get from meeting people that uh, do the same thing or care about the same thing as they do. So not necessarily around their role, just in general. And what I find is that wherever I do that exercise, whatever role it is, wherever it is in the country, whatever country it's in. And I've run this exercise in, quite a lot in the UK, all over the UK. I've run it in India, I've run it in Peru. Um, and the same things come out every single time. So, um, which is which kind of where I end up basing those five benefits on. Intrinsically, people know what community feels like. They they know this. And, and it's sometimes I feel like, like we know we know how to be humans. <laughs> we know how to connect with other people. We Most know of us. <laughs> we know what communities are because we're in communities all over the place and then we get into work and suddenly uh suddenly we forget some of those things yeah. um so i'd ask people to remember remember the things they already know one of the things that popped to mind when you were discussing doing this in, in different parts of the world is a very basic human need is the, the sense of belonging right mm -hmm. uh, how does that resonate with you yeah, I think that's that's 
a really essential part of community um, is that people do feel like they uh, they belong to it. There's some research that was done in the 80s um, by uh, I can I've just it's just gone out of my head um, uh, by uh, Macmillan and Chavis that looked at sense of community. Mm-hmm. And they uh, researched a whole bunch of different communities to understand what is that sense of community. Um, and they came up with four things, which is uh, membership, influence, fulfillment of needs and shared emotional connection. And that membership aspect really is about really is about belonging. And it's about understanding where the edges of the community are as well. So who is it that, you know, ha- can you, I- can the Um, explanation of the community mean that you identify as somebody that belongs to that community and can you see who else belongs to it through understanding what that what the edges of that membership look like Um, so I do think it's really important and yeah the thing is that this is so dastardly um, there it's very it's not very tangibly there People are aware of that. How do you make that more tangible? How do you make this more workable for people? Uh, because it's what you mentioned, people focus on work itself, the performing the work, rather than discussing these kind of things. And same with what psychological safety or the mental aspect means. But how do you make this, bring this to the people, say this is, this might be really good for you guys to work on, whether that's for the, the quality of work or for the, the the sense of belonging, for instance, but how do you make these these boundaries uh, workable? Uh, yeah, so I'm I so I've been so I've been brought into organisations before, and actually sometimes I've been brought into organisations to help them set up communities of practice, and sometimes it's something completely different. But I end up also helping them set up communities of practice because I think if you're doing any uh, anything really <laughs> I think they're really valuable um and it often like some often it starts with the fact that there are there are people that are connected to each other already because um we tend to kind of gravitate towards people that share similar challenges to us and that we can you know have lunch with and complain about things or <laughs> share problems with um so some of that starts to happen already. If that, I often think is if that isn't happening, if people aren't doing that, then there's something else. There's a different problem. Um, there's a different challenge to overcome. It, that's probably harder or been much harder over the last couple of years where people aren't in the same office as each other and they're not, they're not kind of spending as much time together socially. Um, and then uh, what I, I tend to do is I, I tend to, uh, create a kickoff workshop for them and, and create the space for them to have the conversation to say what is what is the things that we what's the things that the community wants to do so I, I tend to I tend to find that there are some people in organizations that naturally um, who are naturally community members but actually kind of naturally community leaders as well because they're really keen for for it to happen so bring those people together and start with those people um do a bit of a kickoff, get them to talk about what 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 is it that they think they what their purpose is, when are they going to meet, what are um, who's the community for those kind of things, and actually just start meeting. Um, 
there is the other side of that is uh is support from the organization which is a uh which is kind of a, a different challenge but um if i tend to find if if organizations are looking to go through some kind of change it's something that they can kind of hook into into their kind of change initiatives you mentioned leaders and, and looking at the natural group leaders now if i look at in the environments that you usually work in you have very dominant people that are very extroverted and are out there are those by default a good leader for communities yeah um i it's not necessarily it, t- it tends to be the people that are that like connecting people so i uh like yeah personally like i have been a person that likes connecting people but i wouldn't call myself an extroverted character uh so i don't <laughs> Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Often it might be that someone just is really well connected um, and has a lot of social capital, just knows a lot of people. Um, I I always think with communities, I think the mistake that some people make is they think, well, it needs to be the more senior people that are the leaders of the community. And I don't think that's the case. What we really want with communities is that they're a little bit flatter structure and the leaders of the communities are are people that are good at leading communities. It doesn't matter where they are in the in the hierarchy of the organisation. Would people more uh, higher in the hierarchy uh, would they be in the communities of practice as well if they wouldn't be a leader? I guess this solely is mm-hmm. just something for people performing the actual work, or is it basically for anyone who has an interest in it? So I tend to, and it kind of, the answer on that one is it, it depends, but what I tend to do if they are always, you know, I'm a consultant, that's my stock answer. Um, that's my go-to answer as well. <laughs> yeah. um, if it's a community of, of practice, um, it makes a lot of sense that people in it are practicing, whatever that community is about. And it's not just people that are interested. Um, what I tend to do and there's a lot of discussion about open or closed communities and I think it a lot of that depends on the maturity of the organization or the maturity of those certain roles or skills within the organization Um, but I think it can I think it's it's worthwhile focusing on people that are actively practicing because then they can help each other they can have those kind of deep conversations that you need when you're stuck on something or when you need help with something um i have uh worked with communities where we kind of almost have two rings where there's the people that are practicing um spend time meeting together and they have more open sessions for people that are interested and i've I've done that in the past actually um i uh had a community of practice um when I was at GDS called the agile delivery community. And I had lots of people saying, Oh, we want to come along because we want to learn more about agile delivery. And um, what I ended up doing is saying, well, we will have open sessions. Uh, Tell us what you want to know. And we will, we will spend time um, having sessions where we can talk about those things whilst keeping our kind of safe space where we could talk about more, talk at things at a deeper level or talk about challenges that we had without having an audience of lots of other people around. 
is this a community is a community of practice just on the level of people performing the work or have you worked with management communities of practice before as well um i have worked with i'm trying to think for what management communities um i think it's i think there's always value and this is interesting because it's there starts to be a point where the terminology can get you can get tripped up on the terminology and sometimes i've been in organizations and just called called them communities and said some of them are <laughs> for the, these type of communities some of these type of communities it it doesn't really matter and i think the the there's an essence here about when you get together as a community as opposed to getting together to to do your work work it kind of gives you the time and space to learn from each other and to talk about things in a different way than um, if you're getting together to have a status meeting or a very uh, kind of a meeting that's very focused on a particular work outcome. Um, so there's this, I think there's a lot of times people don't necessarily give themselves that space to do that. Uh, so, yeah, so when it comes to something like a management team, having that time to do that, whether it's called a community of practice or not, I think is really important. Yeah, I think so too, because what I see happening is that most, especially middle management, is in that position. And this by no means take this as blame. This is just an observation. Is that middle management got to that position because either a seniority, so that the organization had to offer them a position being management or because they are very skilled at a certain content more for instance developing language programming language and ultimately working themselves up to be a manager not being trained to actually be a manager but because they are there so would you consider that being very useful a community of practice on management techniques getting people up to speed with different management um, practices as well yeah, which which reminds me of with one client where we um, were setting up communities of practice, a lot of people were practitioners and experts in their field, but they were also line managers, um, which I which I got them to consider the fact that those are two roles that need two different like you can <laughs> that need uh, practices around those roles as well. So you can be a, a senior. Um, designer for example but if you're also a line manager you need support in being the best line manager that you can be um, because as we all know uh, we've I'm sure most of us have had good line managers who really help us and not so good line managers that can really hinder, <laughs> hinder us absolutely um, do you feel there's there's a difference in, in uh, entry level let's put it like that is there a, a bigger threshold for senior people or senior managers or c-level managers to enter such a community of practice mm, i'm not sure what you mean well for, for instance this is more done and this is more actively engaged within people performing the work whereas mm. i never i've never seen this happen on management or c-level uh, mm. is there a different threshold when, when it comes to perception or psychological safety on higher mm. levels in the hierarchy yeah, it's interesting. I think um, so. It was, uh, it was one organisation I was working with um, who 
had a kind of network of kind of CIOs across the country. Um, and it was really interesting to talk to them and how they interacted with each other. Um, and I think a lot of what you see is particularly at that level is people are too busy, um, way too busy to take part in anything. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure. So finding that time to, you know, maybe block some, you know, block time out of your calendar to, to do learning is really hard for people to do. And I think that's, um, that's what makes it, makes it really difficult. And it really also comes down then to motivation. You talked about intrinsic motivation. There's a lot of extrinsic motivation, um, as well. And the more, it's the higher you go up and the, the more pressure you have, the more the extrinsic motivation is to get stuff done and delivered rather than take the time out to learn. Is there a different level of psychological safety involved with that as well? The, the more you go, the less prone you are to being open about um, failures or challenges. Mm. Yeah, I think particularly if you're working like that, that particular scenario was, was people in different organizations as well. So sharing failures um uh can be very difficult to do and it also depends on um there's kind of cultural dependencies i think as well uh whether whether that's celebrated or not as or seen that failures are bad mm. how do you break that barrier then because people are expected especially uh, let's put it like the lower ones in the hierarchy and not to be disrespectful because ultimately I would like to see a flat hierarchy, but people in teams performing the work are more expected to be open about whatever challenges or failures that they have. While this requires leading by example, right? Mm -hmm. they, they should have a solid example of how this should be done, how this should be performed. Uh, but if I hear you correctly, there's way less space to do so in the higher you go up in the chain. Yeah. And I think it takes, I mean, it takes a strong, takes strong, confident leadership to show uh, that it's okay to do that. But I, I think, you know, the same with, the same with anyone in an organization, if there isn't a, uh, if there isn't a culture of sharing and being open, then people won't, won't share and, and be open. Um, and with something like, I think, communities of practice for example can help people share with each other but they won't share if they don't feel psychologically safe so what you know mistakes that i've seen some organizations make is tell everyone they're in a community of practice and you're all in a community of practice right off you go <laughs> everybody yeah, exactly um rather than taking a uh which i think a far better way and this is an approach i've taken with so I run a community um, which started as a meetup and has, has grown into a community called Agile in the Ether, um, which is a meetup I've been running for maybe four years now, something like that. Um, I've taken a the I've taken a really kind of slow and steady and gradual approach to to growing the community side of it, which is sits on Slack. Um, which is only a certain criteria before people can join. Um, it's not about just opening it up and inviting everyone in because then you get another one of those like Slack groups where no one is talking and no one uh, knows each other. 
<laughs> oh, that's that's one of the other aspects as well. I've seen so many communities uh, of practice or chapters or whatever pop up, either because they are told to do so or someone had mm -hmm. to, the brilliant idea to do so. Yet they're also the first ones to be skipped or where people are very less engaged or a little engaged. Mm -hmm. How to overcome this bridge? Yeah, I'd say I think I think the approach is to start small with the people that are um, that see the value in it in the first place, um, and grow uh, grow just having a, a small engaged group of people that are getting value and start to show that value to other people will will bring other people in um, rather than you know, just open up the doors and say, everybody go and talk to each other, go and share with each other um, is, is probably the first place to start, but keeping it interesting um, is, is the next thing to carry on keeping people engaged. Do you make that because I've had my, my specific approaches, but I'm really curious about your perspective as well. Do you have a singular, singular approach to this? For instance, do you have, make people, create a backlog of these are the, the items that we would be interested in or how do you work with this? How do you make it interesting for other people to join? Um, so there's a, there's a few methods that I've used. So I have a, um, and this is, I, I say this, it's not what I've done in my, um, in the community that I run, <laughs> taking a different approach to that. But generally in organizations, um, I have a kickoff canvas. I have a workshop format, which, which gets, uh, people together to talk about the community, why it exists, who it's for, what it's called, which is always handy, um, and some of the things that it hopes to achieve and when it's going to meet. So getting people to agree that they're going to meet on a regular basis is quite important. Um, I also have a maturity model that I use, or it's so it's it's a framework really. Um, that I have as a set of cards that when I'm with people in a physical workshop, which has been a while, uh, gets people to to talk about whether they, there's a bunch of statements on the cards to talk about whether they think they're true or not. And that helps them identify some of the things that they need to do in order to uh, keep the community more successful. Um, then there's also a, like I have a bit of a guidance around um, how people should think about their meetups um, and how they might vary them and keep them interesting. So sometimes it's spending time uh, talking about their own situation, so their own role in their own organisations and some of the problems that they have. But, I d but if you do that every single week, that gets really can get really dry. <laughs> so then different things that people might do. So looking outwards and learning new things and, and different uh, a kind of almost like uh, kind of a plan to say on this week you should do this kind of thing this week you should do this kind of thing and, and give that to people to help them mix up what it is that they do as they get together is there a universal cadence that would be that's that's most commonly accepted I think that judging by your your smile that's that's a frequent question yeah and I think it's it's interesting because the like I, I tend to say to communities, so if it's a community of practice in an organisation that's just kicking off, I tend to tell people they should be meeting as a group weekly. 
Um, and then sometimes that raises some eyebrows because <laughs> people will think, weekly? We haven't got time to meet weekly. Um, but the reason for doing that is you're, you're kind of, you're, you're growing some momentum. But the other thing is that people aren't always going to be able to meet. So if you miss one of those, it's only two weeks before you can go to another one. Um, but if you meet monthly and you can't make one of those, cause you know, we, we've got work, we've got, um, team meetings, other things we need to be in, then it's two months before you see people. And that's, that starts to become a really long period of time. Or one community I once spoke to and said, oh, we meet every six months. And so if you miss one of those, that's a whole year uh, before you meet again. Um, So I think it's really useful to have a really regular cadence. Although, and meetings are kind of the heartbeat of the community, but it's not the only, it's also not the only way that people interact with each other. It shouldn't be the only way that people interact with each other. So I tend to kind of lean people towards weekly and then they often sometimes they meet fortnightly but um i think any any more than that uh it's it's hard to kind of keep people together keep that together but that's the same with the the time box what's what's the time box that you use for a weekly event of this do you spend an hour together do you spend half an hour do you spend five hours (laughs) you spend seven uh, five days together every week um (laughs) uh yeah and half an hour an hour weekly I think is is good. Anything shorter than half an hour, it's you, you know what it's like if you try and have a meeting shorter than half an hour. You'll just be be establishing uh, establishing an agenda for half an hour. Yeah. One yeah. of the most common arguments that I get for not attending a community of practice or any form alike is that it doesn't come back to us in the uh, annual review. It doesn't. It, it's not part of our appraisal. What to do with that? Do you feel that this should be part of your the way that you are being perceived or rewarded, or however you want to call it? Uh, how do you deal yeah. with this? Yeah, and I, I think it's important to to make it recognised. So, and, and the balance is not telling people that they will only be that, that they have to take part because I don't think you should force people. But it, I do think they should be recognised for the time and effort they spend on things that are of value um, to the organisation, which essentially it is. Um, and I've, I've seen that, you know, people who uh, take part in leading communities spend lots of time, lots of effort. They're creating fantastic things that other people can use. They're leading on uh, great things. They're helping other people learn and they get to their review and there's nothing in there. So well, what have you been doing for the yeah. last year um so i think it's important to to recognize it and and any organization you know should be recognizing the value that people bring that is outside of their day-to-day role anyway and do you make that is that part of the discussion in in how often you attend or how active you participate or how many you facilitated how does that that work because i would be very much interested in making this a part of your annual review or whatever cadence you have for your review this annual review is still a very outdated format, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Other than that, what what would be the right approach to this? Yeah, I don't. I I, I think it's a good idea to um, have it uh, have it so. And I I think it's this is the the challenge is you know you want your communities to be uh, voluntary because you want people to want to take part. So if you start to say 
you have to attend this many community practice meetups <laughs> a year um then you're it's like you you get what you measure right so people will turn up that doesn't mean they're going to engage so i think it's better to have those conversations to be around a contribution and impact rather than specific numbers and actually people may uh, have great contribution and impact out, not not even as part of a community of practice so um yeah i think kind of tie, tying that down too much to kind of making people behave in a certain way without really being invested in it is problematic what about the facilitation part is it's always the same person who facilitates or that's what i meant also referring back to the dominant people how do you ensure that it's not always the same group of people up front yeah i think and one of so i think when you're thinking about a community of practice and you have a kind of core group of people which sometimes i call them core groups some kind of sometimes you call them leadership but the people that are that, that you know do the things that make the community of practice happen um one of the roles there i think is being uh, responsible for making sure that there is content uh in the meetups but that doesn't necessarily mean running them and actually i think that it's it's best when everybody is it's it's shared so facilitation happens um by different people and sometimes you know facilitation is a skill that people are looking to grow so facilitating within <laughs> facilitating something within the community practice meetup uh, is enabling people to build their skills as well. What's the best result you've ever seen coming forward out of a community of practice? Um, I think, so there's lots of different things of value that I've seen that come out of communities of practice. Um, the thing that I always tend to is gravitate towards is seeing is seeing people that are happy <laughs> and motivated um i have a quote on a slide uh, that i often use which was from somebody in a community of practice that i think had really they were they weren't feeling great about their job they weren't feeling particularly supported and having the community of practice around them and building those kind of deeper uh relationships with other people in the who who practice the same thing meant that they actually felt much much more confident and secure in their role and they talked about the fact that um they felt that everyone had each other's backs um so they could they had help they could reach out to people other people and ask them and for me that's 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 super important but i've also seen you know on a kind of benefit to organizations point of view communities of practice create training for other parts of the organization which i think is really valuable because you not only are you not going out and paying for it, you're also getting very uh, relevant kind of material, relatable material for the organisation. Um, I've seen people create standards. Um, I've seen uh, people um, said earlier, you know, share things that mean that other people aren't doing uh, work. I've seen people create, um, especially on the standards thing, things like, the GDS service manual, or you can see kind of Google's design system is created and owned by communities, which means it's um, 
always relevant and up to date because the practitioners are keeping that information up to date. And then I also have heard that uh, there was a agile community of practice at a large UK bank that was really in- instrumental in the agile transformation of that bank. Awesome. How do you, one of the things that popped to mind is how does the organization, the broader organization leverage the results of multiple communities of practice? For instance, how can we learn, how can different communities learn from the outputs and the outcomes of other communities? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I think, um, it's hard because a lot of that is about it being, I guess, with being kind of in the fabric of the organization. Like, you know, your communities are successful. I know communities of practice are successful when people uh, just kind of naturally refer to them like they're just part of what we do, just part of what the organization does. And when people um, start to talk about uh, communities as an entity in themselves. So instead of saying, I'm going to go and ask, um, I don't know, so-and-so for help, they say, I'm going to ask the community, I'm going to go to the community and ask for help in this thing or whatever that might be, or how do I do this thing? Um, I think that's when they're just kind of part of everything. Um, in terms of sharing, and I think there's a, a value in that kind of cross community sharing as well I think it's great to see when communities start inviting each other to some of their sessions particularly where they have crossover um, or joining up and learning in that way I am a while back I was working with an organization where um, it was one of the ones where I hadn't I hadn't gone into set up communities of practice but I did anyway (laughs) Um, and one place that we took uh, a couple of the communities is we started to create joined up training and learning plans um, rather than these kind of individualistic learning plans. I think previously once a year, line managers would send an email out to everyone saying, Oh, we got some budget. Where do you want to, what training do you want? And people individually would come back and talk about what training they wanted. Um, So we actually said, look, we're going to do a thing as a, uh, together and we're going to work at identify some some areas and they they all they came out and they said this is one thing and, and part of that was to say you know where can we help each other rather than just spend money on training um, and they all came out and said we really want to learn more uh, about accessibility and that's really important for us um, and so they were they decided the best thing to do was to bring a trainer in and then they were able to open that up to other communities as well um so yeah that's pretty awesome <laughs> yeah hey now before going to the the closure of this episode if there's a single advice to organizations who want to start working with communities of practice what would it be it would be to uh let the people that are enthusiastic about them um or give the give them the space to get on and make them happen Awesome. I'm definitely going to put this into practice. I'm currently dealing with a couple of these implementations and I'm really looking forward to putting this to practice. You mentioned uh, one of your meetups before. Where can people find that? Um, that is agile in the ether 
.co.uk, I think. Yes, .co.uk. Although it is, um, it's it's online. It's and it's it's been online since 2018. Uh, so it's even though it's a .co.uk, it's not UK based. <laughs> it's right. in the I'm going to include that in the show notes if you're okay with that, because you mentioned there are some prerequisites to it. it. Might be very useful for other people as well. Anyone can come along to the to the meetup. All right, um, awesome, yeah. <laughs> great. Where can people find you? Where can people interact with you? Uh, so, I my blog is emilyweber.co.uk, and I'm eWeber on Twitter. Awesome. Put those in the show notes as well. Emily Weber, thank you very much for being here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Big thanks again to Emily and of course to you guys as well for tuning again in this episode of this podcast series. Just wanted to remember you again that we have this awesome giveaway. The only thing that you have to do is join the Mastering Agility Discord community. Easy as that. There's nothing else to it. In the next episode, we're talking to Henrik Nieberg. And I got to say, I really like this guy. I like his mentality. I like what he's done for the Agile community. And I really love this discussion. Stay tuned for more. 